Hi, this is Dr. Alan Brown. I want to thank you all for joining us on Lipid Insights. Today, we have two fantastic speakers to talk about women and cardiovascular disease and help us understand some of the disparities in care uh, or things that we need to have top of mind when we're trying to both prevent cardiovascular disease in women and reduce the risk of a second cardiovascular event. We have with us Dr. Zareen Faruqi, who is an associate physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and also an instructor at Harvard, and Dr. Rachel Bond, who is the system director for women's health at Dignity Health in Chandler, Arizona, and she's also an assistant professor of medicine at Creighton. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bond. So, Dr. Faruqi, I had a the pleasure of talking to you a little bit before we started the interview, and uh, you were pointing out that both in primary and secondary prevention, there seems to be some disparity in care provided to women versus men. And I, I'd like you to explain to us a little more about that so we can be more knowledgeable about those issues and hopefully make some adjustments. Thank you, Dr. Brown. That, that's a very um, important topic and also one that there's been a lot of uh, interest in recently, uh, especially with some of the studies that are coming out, highlighting some of the disparities in both primary and secondary prevention. Um, there was a very uh, large scale re uh, review of this, looking through several studies, and it seems very consistent, um, especially quite prominent in secondary prevention population as well, where we know that um, there are you know, therapies that are life-saving that are not being uh, given to women at the same rate as men. And this not only includes procedures, but also includes medications. So um, I think the important thing is to realize is that we also don't know some, sometimes why there is so much disparity. There's, there's a lot of theories postulated, which also includes sometimes um, patient uh, knowledge of the, their own uh, risk uh, in, also a physician assessment of risk, and also this kind of bias, just this kind of uh, implicit bias that women are at lower risk at all stages of their lifespan. And so um, it, the feeling that maybe uh, subconsciously we're not giving them the care that they need. But we haven't really teased out the proportion of all of this. Uh, we just know that the final outcome is, is that women do tend to receive uh, less of the medical uh, care that they need. Yeah, I think, you know, there's no doubt that there has been a bias over a lot of years that the women just don't have the same cardiovascular event rate. And we know now that that's clearly not true. They just tend to have it 10 years later than men for a whole number of reasons. And you brought up a whole bunch of interesting points, including uh, that, you know, sometimes we don't think about some of the unique risk factors that, that uh, women have, uh, they're not part of our consciousness about this would actually put a woman at much higher risk. I know Dr. Bond has some thoughts about that uh, also from discussions we've had in terms of the tools we use to assess risk in women. Dr. Fruki alluded to that, but Dr. Bond, did you wanna uh, give us a little more information about the, the issues with our tools that we use for risk assessment? Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think it's important that we highlight those issues because it does limit us, even as clinicians, our ability to better risk stratify patients if they're low risk, medium risk, or even high risk. So it's confusing for us as clinicians. So I could only imagine how confusing it may be for the patient and the community. But it's important to acknowledge the fact that women do have sex specific risk factors. A lot of these risk factors do occur during pregnancy. So gestational high blood pressure, gestational diabetes, even premature labor could be a risk factor in the very near future for heart disease. And that could be both brain uh, complications such as a stroke or even a heart attack or even peripheral disease, meaning your extremities have plaque that builds up in the arteries in the legs or your arms. As an example, we also know that other more female-specific risk factors or sex-specific risk factors include the age of menopause. And the earlier one goes through menopause, the higher their risk. We also know that the early that they obtain their first menstrual period also can actually place them at a higher risk for heart disease in the future. There are some risks that also disproportionately affect women more than men. A lot of those are, are inflammatory conditions such as autoimmune disease, like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, which we do know disproportionately affects more women than men. And because of that, we actually do see that there is a higher risk for heart disease because of that inflammatory process. Now, data is showing that cardiovascular disease is an inflammatory disease. And thus, if you have an inflammatory condition, that's going to put you at a higher risk for it. It may likely put you also at a higher risk for a future cardiac event. Beyond that, I want to stress the importance of no pun intended stress. So chronic stress and anxiety and depression, which also disproportionately affect more women than men, are risk factors for heart disease. And I can't highlight enough during this pandemic how many patients are probably under a, a, a mountain of stress. But it's very important that we as clinicians use our tools to diagnose this early, but also incorporate these conditions when we're figuring out what one's risk of having a cardiac event may be. So that's very interesting. Uh, back to you, Dr. Faruqi. So in light of that, uh, when you are evaluating a woman uh, in a preventative clinic, for example, which is what I do every day, um, what kind of questions do you ask that are specific when it's a female patient, specific to females that uh, help you assess risk? So, um, just how Dr. Bond uh, very eloquently summarized, um, the, the uh, menstrual history uh, is very important, and then also the pregnancy history. Uh, especially things like gestational um, diabetes or hypertension. And it's surprising how many times you actually don't think to ask that because we, we tend to view men and women so similarly that um, that just kind of is not even part of your usual screening process, I feel like, or unless you are in a preventive kind of clinic or preventive thought mode as a clinician, you may not really even focus in on that. In fact, when patients come into the hospital as well, uh, it's very rare that we're training people to, to ask about premature menopause uh, as a CBD risk factor. So it's very nice that the newer guidelines have included that, as Dr. Brown and, and you yourself, Dr. Brown, have mentioned, um, because I think uh, specifically for women, that is something very different from men, obviously, um, the, the menstrual history and the, and the gestational history. So uh, we do need to kind of focus in on that. And I, and I ask people specifically if they have had menopause or if they've had early menopause or hysterectomies uh, and their pregnancy history. 
think uh, you're both right in the fact that, you know, not only do those really affect risk, and thank goodness uh, they've been now included in the 2018 multi-specialty guidelines, at least for, uh, you know, cholesterol guidelines. Um, but I, but very few of us have a template in our office that when we're seeing somebody for prevention, uh, that we ask those specific questions. So I think that's that's very helpful, and I hope our audience thinks about doing that. Dr. Bond, do you have such a template, like when patients come in, female patients that ask those specific questions and uh, incorporate that into your risk assessment? I do, and I think that that's what's unique sometimes about incorporating the expertise of a women's cardiovascular specialist, because I share my template within my health system with all the cardiologists, as well as the primary care physicians as well, because of course they are part of this uh, journey in terms of preventive care too. I do agree that we don't have guidelines in place right now, but within my own template, it includes the pregnancy history, the menstrual history, um, family history, of course, and specific to pregnancy history, I don't just particularly ask when their last menstrual period was as an example, but I also highlight when their last pregnancy was because we now are seeing that heart disease is the leading cause of death for mothers as well as the postpartum period. And it's up to one year after delivery. So it's very important that we acknowledge if they're coming in with any signs or symptoms concerning of heart disease, that it could still be related to that actual pregnancy, which is in of itself its own stress test. So there's a lot of things that I incorporate into my um, intake forms. Well, you touched on something that maybe I'll take the, the uh, interviewer's prerogative to mention, which is how you've utilized what you've done. And, and I'm sure Dr. Faruqi does the same thing to try and make those who are not part of your center better physicians, right? And uh, you know the way we all stay relevant in preventative cardiology is not by how many RVUs we generate in the clinic, but by taking care of the most difficult patients, but providing information that helps all of our colleagues take better care of the general patient, right? Uh, so you have the, both of you have the opportunity to really be at the pulpit, but yet bring the level of assessment up for all physicians in your program uh, with regard to women's health. So I applaud you both for your interest in that and also for what you're doing. And that's how you always stay relevant. It doesn't matter how many RVUs you generate or what revenue your clinic generates if you're helping the rest of the organization do a better job. It's a lesson to be learned by those of us in specialty clinics. So thank you for bringing that up. So, so we touched on a couple other things during our pre-interview discussion. I wanted to ask Dr. Faruqi a little bit about it. And one thing you brought up to me, which was intriguing, was uh, that maybe we get lulled into a false sense of security because women have a higher HDL level than men in general. And folks think, well, okay, your HDL is good. And I can't tell you how many patients have come to my clinic and told me that their primary doctor said, don't worry about your cholesterol because you have a high HDL, which of course we know is, is not correct, uh, but th that's out there. So uh, Dr. Faruqi, you want to just share your thoughts on the, the HDL issue in women and the fact that they generally have a little higher HDL. Uh, yeah, thank you. That This is actually a, a personal interest of mine because as you mentioned, it is um, so common that women have been told that your HDL is high and so uh, you don't really need to worry too much about your LDL. And so um, I really think it's important to highlight the fact that 
that that's not necessarily the case, especially in the postmenopausal, perimenopausal timeframe where uh, we think that actually now we're thinking maybe HDL function um, is becoming altered, even though the HDL cholesterol level is still high. Um, and there's a lot of interesting studies that are kind of coming out now that are trying to probe into this a bit more, in a bit more detail. Unfortunately, we don't at the clinical level have HDL functional metrics being measured in our labs. And so it's hard to identify those women who are having uh, abnormal HDL function uh, and higher CBD risk, um, at least for women on a day-to-day -day basis at this time. But I think as we get more scientific data, we'll be able to hopefully narrow in into which women are the ones that we need to pay more attention to. And some of it might be just um, getting better risk prediction tools, as Dr. Bond was mentioning, that incorporate some of the things very specific to women that we talked about. Um, but I think HDL, the, the story behind HDL is evolving, and uh, there's going to be a role for that in our risk prediction in the future, especially since, um, just to add that uh, for the ASTBD risk calculator, we do use HDL cholesterol, and, and that could give us a, another false um, sense of security and underestimation of risk in specific women. Yeah, I have said for 36 years that HDL is a lot like psychiatry. Half of what we know is correct, and nobody's sure which half. I'm sure that makes <laughs> psychiatrists mad, but so far nobody's proven me wrong. You know, it, certainly the level of HDL cholesterol has been elusive in terms of risk. And uh, most recently, we have this U-shaped curve for risk with HDL, where if the HDL is very low, we know in a population that the risk is high. And then once HDL comes up to that 40 to 70, 45 or 50 to 70 range, you have, uh, based on a population assessment, in general, a reduced risk. But as the HDL creeps up over 100, and for women over 110, you start to see increased risk again. And there's a lot of uh, theoretical reasons why that might be. But it is clear that you know you can't make a blanket statement that if you have a high HDL, you're protected. And, certainly doesn't alleviate the risk of all the other things we've been talking about today in women. Dr. Bond, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I was going to just say to the same point that we can alleviate the fact that if you have a low LDL, that your risk is also um, mitigated or low. I mean, we know now that even with our um, with our lipid guidelines and our prevention guidelines, they are suggesting looking at other factors like lipoprotein little a as an example, proteins that come off of the cholesterol panel um, or apolipoprotein B. So I think that in preventive cardiology, we have many tools right now that hopefully could better risk stratify patients, but also if patients were diagnosed with cardiovascular disease and we are still kind of perplexed as to why, it's definitely important for us to look at those particular tools just to see if that could be a potential reason as to why atherosclerosis happened or heart disease happened um, in the beginning. Yeah, very good point. I mean, as, as really the epidemic of obesity and diabetes occurs, the insulin resistance leads to, as we all know, all the things you talked about earlier, the inflammation, superimposed hypertension, low HDL, uh, and proatherogenic state and not with a necessarily high LDL, but a lot of particles, right? So the ApoB definitely looks at those people, but um, there are those folks that have elevated numbers of particles who actually don't clearly look like they have metabolic syndrome. And uh, so I like your point, Dr. Bond, that 
when do you do additional testing? Well, one could argue alpha on everybody with a family history. Some argue alpha on everybody, but I think that's because pretty soon we're going to have therapies to lower it, and hopefully those therapies will actually bear out some fruit in terms of reducing events. We have to wait for that, but uh, but with ApoB and looking at you know particle numbers and things like this, it's when you have a question when a patient is not behaving the way you expect them to, uh, digging in a little deeper. But LDL by itself is, uh, you know, not the whole answer. So uh, I, I certainly think those are very good points. So we have uh, about 10 minutes left. I'd like to, you know, talk a little bit about uh, some of the tools that we use to assess risk in patients. And, you know, at our institution, it's $49 for a calcium score. You can't get anything for 49 bucks. You can't even probably buy lunch at the cafeteria for two people for $49. So uh, we use that frequently. It's relatively low radiation. It gives you a person's sort of personal risk as opposed to putting them into a calculator. And yet um, the way that those reports are, are reported and in some cases, the way people interpret them is widely variable. So on this one, I'm going to start with Dr. Bond and ask you about, you know, how we should be looking at calcium scores in women and are there unique issues there compared to men? Yeah, no, I, th I completely agree with you. I think the calcium score is a wonderful tool to provide us even with information as to how aggressive we should be from a primary prevention perspective. Should we start a statin or can we hold off and just focus on lifestyle? What I like to always say, though, is that it's not just the absolute number that we should be looking at. It's really the percentile that MESA calculation or multi-ethnic um, score um, the multi-ethnic society equation of, of ethnicity that allows us to actually see what the percentile is. Because if somebody falls in at least the 75th percentile or greater, then we know that they actually are at a high risk. That implies that their calcium score is higher than 75% of the population compared to their age, their gender, their race and ethnicity. And that actually puts them at a much higher risk than somebody who maybe has an absolute calcium score, even of, let's say as an example, 100 versus having a percentile or even of, let's say, a, 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 a absolute risk of 80, as an example, uh, versus a 75th percentile greater than a 75th percentile. So I think that the utility of using the calcium score is there, but we also have to be thoughtful about how we're actually interpreting the results, not just the absolute score, but calculating that percentile based on their age, their gender, their race and ethnicity. Right, and that, uh, I think everyone listening should make sure at their site, if they're doing calcium scoring, that that MESA percentile is part of the report because it, it also is very helpful in convincing patients to go on therapy. And I have a few thoughts on that, but I'm going to wait because I want to hear Dr. Faruqi's thoughts on calcium scoring and women versus men and how you guys deal with that uh, risk assessment at the Brigham. Um, well, I think um, calcium scoring uh, is very useful, especially in that intermediate borderline risk group for some people with some of those risk enhancing factors, which, um, as we talked about, women may have more of, um, including, you know, the, the whole menstrual history and then the inflammatory disease um, uh, history as well. So it, it's, a, I think it's a very useful tool and I use it fairly frequently myself um, in men and in women. And women in particular, though, um, you know, there is this thought that 
they tend to have more um, soft plaque and, and non-calcified plaque. And so uh, sometimes even with the calcium scoring, which is a very well-validated tool, uh, you could maybe still be underestimating things because you don't pick up on that soft plaque. So uh, it's important to use that, um, but also look at all of the other risk factors as well and, and try to give a holistic uh, approach um, is, is my take on it. Yeah, so I'm, again, I'm going to take the interviewer's prerogative here to talk about, you know, what do you do with a zero calcium score? And I think, you know, Dr. Bond alluded to the fact that you might be able to postpone initiation of therapy. There have been some retrospective evaluations of charts that suggest that if the score was over 100, then patients definitely had a better outcome over 10 years being on a statin. It wasn't so easy to show if their score was under 100. Again, that's a retrospective chart review, but it's interesting. So that's exactly the conversation I have with patients. If they have a score of zero or a very low score, uh, what I tell them is we have two options. One is to wait and repeat the score in five years and not put you on any therapy. But if your LDL is 160, the nice thing about the ASCVD risk assessment tool is it gives you a lifetime risk, and that could be 40 to 50%. So the other option is we can put you on some therapy because your lifetime risk is very high, knowing that your five-year risk is low with a zero score, but we can start our 401k plan to try and keep you healthy later on in life. And then I leave that completely up to the patient because there's no right answer, right? And say that you know your any side effects or threshold for stopping the drug would be very low but um but I, those are the options and one could argue let's wait until there is some calcium but then you've let the patient develop atherosclerosis uh, though the, the risk is probably quite low in the absence of other risk factors or let's decide together that we'll go ahead and start an inexpensive uh, drug that's like unlikely to cause any harm uh, but that's a that's one of those classic examples of what the guidelines talk about as the physician-patient discussion, right, that we're supposed to do with every patient. Uh, either one of you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I mean, I concur. That's, it's, it's a lot of um, back and forth conversation and making sure that they're part of the decision-making and their shared decision-making, especially when they're in that low and even borderline risk as an example. And I think the guidelines suggested, and it's actually very effective. I think it's effective to explain to them that we have this data and it's demonstrating that over the next five years, your risk is low. But as you said, if we have a situation where the lifetime risk may be high, giving them the option of starting the medication is completely reasonable. It's also reasonable though, to just closely monitor them and see if there is improvement with aggressive lifestyle and exercise. And I emphasize that because I think that that's another area that we as clinicians can do a better job at in terms of advocating for the, this healthy diet and also the exercise component. Because when you equate all of that, that can lower your LDL cholesterol by nearly 30 to 35% just through lifestyle alone. So I think that that's definitely a tool that's further underutilized in terms of our conversations about expressing the importance of a healthy diet and um, exercise regimen. Yeah, such a good point. And even if it doesn't lower your LDL that much, which a lot of people maybe not get that much, it lowers your risk a lot. Right. I have to make that point to patients all the time. You're not just being healthier for your LDL cholesterol and you might get 10% reduction in LDL, but your overall risk goes down a lot. 
Dr. Faruqi, how do you deal with that lifestyle? I mean, we're all great at prescribing meds and we're lousy at prescribing lifestyle. The old saying is that the problem with willpower is it has a half-life of two weeks and it's soluble in alcohol. So that it's difficult <laughs> for many of our patients. But how do you approach that? I think that's a, a really good point. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to be sexist about this, but I always say if it weren't for women, all men would be dead, you know, because women <laughs> tend to women tend to force us to go get checked. And by the same token, in many cases, they're willing to go ahead and make those lifestyle changes quicker than some of the men. So that might be a absolutely broad swat, you know, generalization I shouldn't make, but I'm sorry, I, I want to hear your thoughts on how do you approach lifestyle modification in, in your women? So I, um, I talk about lifestyle and diet in, in every clinic visit. I make that just like smoking cessation, one of the topics that we will touch on, even if I know from the prior visit that they are doing X, Y, and Z, I always kind of reemphasize it and see what they're doing now, because as you know, things change with time. Um, and then we spend a lot of time uh, talking about uh, some of the uh, studies, some of the trial data regarding healthy diet. And so, um, so for example, like the PREDIMED study, we talk about um, the effect of olive oil. Um, and most people are actually very interested in that and uh, find that um, they do at least try to adhere to that. Um, if you keep mentioning it, I think it really sinks in. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, you're not, yeah, you're not wrong. I think women do tend to, uh, you know, take on more of this caregiving role. And so uh, when it comes to their own health, they, they actually do view that as important because sometimes I feel like it's because of their perception as the caregiver. So they, they want to make sure that they're healthy so they can continue to uh, take care of others. Um, and then there was a recent um, publication looking at uh, dietary uh, and lifestyle modification in women compared to men as part of a, as part of a larger uh, analysis. Uh, and it does look like in general, women tend to eat a little bit healthier than men uh, in the fruits and vegetables department. So um, I think they, they tend to be, uh, you know, when you mention that to them, they are already some of the time doing that kind of a diet, but maybe you just need to be emphasized a little bit more about, you know, some of the saturated fats um, going down on those, uh, but continuing the good fruits and vegetables diet. So that's what at least I found uh, when looking at um, sex differences. That's my N of one for you. Well, you're utilizing a really powerful tool, which is just to ask about it at every clinic visit. This is something that we take for granted, uh, but the power of the physician just asking, how are you doing with your diet and are you exercising? And even are you taking your medications? has been shown over and over in clinical studies in terms of improving adherence and compliance, because if you feel it's important and the patient feels it's important, right? And if you don't mention it, they tend to do much worse. So uh, I, I thought that was a very important point you made and one that's worth emphasizing. We just have a few minutes left. I, I'd like to ask both of you about testing, you know, because one thing that comes up frequently is when you have a somebody that you are worried about who has atherosclerosis, our sensitivity and specificity of some of the go-to tests like you know, nuclear stress tests, for example, versus stress echo is different in women than it is in men. And you can get led down the path if you choose the wrong test. So I wonder uh, you know, how you think about that in terms of diagnostics and how, what you might 
what might be in the back of your mind when assessing a woman for obstructive coronary disease versus a man. Dr. Faruqi, you want to start with that one? Yeah, I'm, th I'm thinking because it, it is so um, different based on the specific person that you're you're looking at that day. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the time, it's depending on what exactly I want to know from that test. You know, and um, ideally, if I'm really have maybe not such a high suspicion, but I just want to know the anatomy without putting them through an angiogram, then I utilize a coronary CT um, frequently, and it's a, it's a nice uh, test because of you know the negative predictive value. If you, if you don't have uh, significant atherosclerosis on your CCTA and it's a good quality study, then um, if there is at least mild disease, you know that you can start them on some good medications if they're not already on it, um, but you save them going down the whole false positive with nuclear testing and then angiogram and then finding that the cores are essentially clean. So um, I, I tend to use, utilize that more so. Uh, if I really do want to get more of a functional assessment though, um, then, it, then it can be, you know, a PET uh, is sometimes nice if you have that available at your location because of good quality images. Um, and then if there's some concern about radiation exposure, then um, I, I do order stress echoes as well. Uh, but there's there's you know there's nuances to to each of those tests depending on on what you're looking for. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Bond. Any other thoughts? I mean, obviously CTA is great, and unless they have a high calcium score, then you're kind of stuck doing some kind of functional testing, right? But uh, we definitely we're also doing a lot more coronary CTAs because you get the answer. But um, you brought up. Uh, Dr. Faruqi brought up the false positive rate in women with uh, nuclear stress tests. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you approach the diagnosis in women. Yeah, and I, I think it's also important to highlight that sometimes using a multimodality imaging approach, especially in women, is very beneficial, um, especially because we know that a lot of times women may have non-obstructive coronary artery disease, but still have symptoms. Um, in addition, microvascular disease, a lot of things that we can't capture with that anatomical evaluation, like a cardiac CT. I, for one, love cardiac CT for the reasons that Dr. Faruqi mentioned, which includes, again, that we could actually anatomically see if there's plaque or evidence of that. But I think there is in certain patient situations value in getting that functional assessment. And that's where, again, doing a multimodality approach may come into effect, be it a PET scan or even stress MRI, as an example, if there's concerns for microvascular dysfunction, or even thinking about if the patient eventually gets to the coronary catheterization lab, doing some provocative testing within the lab to see if there's evidence of microvascular dysfunction. Um, so I think when it comes to women, there's not, a, there's not an ideal test. I think the multimodality approach may be more beneficial than just focusing just on one particular imaging modality as it stands right now. Yeah, any comment on routine stress ECGs? Because there's always a lot of pressure to save costs. And in uh, a, a male with some risk factors got an absolutely normal resting ECG. Uh, that you're kind of pushed to do just a stress ECG. Um, as an interventional cardiologist, that's not very satisfying to me, but uh, in women, you see a lot more false abnormal stress ECGs, right? So Dr. Faruqi, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, if you stick 
very closely to the guidelines, we're still supposed to use the ETTs as the first line. Um, does that happen in clinical practice? Most of the time not. I mean, you know, just <laughs> from rounding in the hospital, you realize that most of the time there's imaging involved. Um, and and I, if, if there's a young woman, and I'm not really so concerned, um, but it, I'm concerned enough to get some kind of test, then I, I will do an ETT sometimes without imaging. Uh, and then, uh, you know, for kind of proceed more if needed, um, depending on what that tells you. So when you feel the suspicion is low and you're just trying to reassure a patient who's got a normal resting ECG, that's when you would take that approach. Is that right? Um, more, more along those lines. When my own particular pretest probability is, you know, when I don't think it's going to be as markedly abnormally high. I mean, technically, you don't really need a test if they're low risk. So uh, they're still be in the intermediate risk category. But your overall gestalt is, is that uh, they don't have underlying CAD, then that's when it's just a plain ECT is what it's yeah, and I, I think regardless of those guidelines, you know, most of the time, uh, if you follow guidelines, you're going to make much better decisions than if you just fly by the seat of your pants. But we know that they are just guidelines and there's going to be patients who are just worried and they want reassurance and regard. And, you know, so you're going to make decisions based on uh, individual patients, not all the time, hopefully a minority of the time, but uh it's still valuable, as I think you were pointing out in your discussion. Dr. Bond, any final thoughts about exercise testing in women? Yeah, no, I, I kind of have the same approach where if I do think that they're in that lower or borderline risk, that it's completely fair to do a plain treadmill stress test. Um, for the most part, though, we do know that, as you alluded to, women tend to have more higher false positive rates with just exercise testing. And then that's where we then have an arsenal of things we can choose from, be it a stress echo, nuclear PET, MRI, possibly even deciding if the yeah, treadmill stress is positive, going down the path of anatomical evaluation. So I think that although guidelines are present, we do have to individualize each patient and obviously take their risk factors, their symptomatology and all of that into, a, into account at the end of the day. Well, thank you both. That's a great wrap up. I enjoyed both of your insights. Again, thank you to Dr. Zareen Faruqi, Associate Physician at Brigham and Women's, instructor at Harvard, and who has a particular interest in women's health, as well as Dr. Rachel Bond, System Director of Women's Health at Dignity Health in Chandler, Arizona, and also Assistant Professor of Medicine at Creighton for your insights today. And thanks to all the audience for joining us for this episode of Lipid Insights.